Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 553 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says... Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. And it's available now on Amazon.com. And today on the show, we'll be discussing the movies Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly, Existence, and Crimes of the Future, all of which were written and directed by David Cronenberg, who was our guest back in episode 125. And this will include spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 31st appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers' Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Good to be back, Dave. Then next up, we've got Matthew Kressel also making his 31st appearance on the show. His novel Queen of Static, the follow-up to his groundbreaking novel King of Shards, is available now, and he recently launched a newsletter of writing advice at outerdeep.substack.com. Together with Ellen Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction reading series in New York City. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back. And also joining us today is Tom Grenzer, making his 29th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Galaxy's Edge and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction. He's the author of the business book Think Like Google and the short story collection Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairman Seldom Carry Cash. And his popular science book How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, is out now. So Tom, welcome to the show. Really happy to be here again. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea. Mm-hmm. And have you tell us about your history watching David Cronenberg movies? I actually didn't don't have much of a history of watching Cronenberg movies. Um I my first experience of Cronenberg movies was The Fly. Uh I think probably I saw it when it first came out. Um I was a teenager. Um but that was pretty much it. And I have to admit that I was kind of like maybe I shouldn't do this panel because I'm not mm-hmm. into body horror. Um, and, uh, but then I was like, you know what? I'll try it. I haven't seen the fly in years and how bad could it be? And it's, it's pretty, uh, gruesome to watch. So you kind of like, uh, solidified my dislike of body horror. (laughs) That aside, um, I think all of them are really interesting science fiction premises and stories. Uh, so I did appreciate that. Um, yeah, just personally for me, things blowing up and gross stuff well, it, it isn't my taste. But um. 
Had you seen, because he has like actually some, we didn't, we're not going to talk about them really today, but he has a bunch of movies that like um, History of Violence or. Yeah, I'd uh, never seen it. I, I, there's, I, I looked up his, you know, uh, all of his movies. I, <laughs> I hadn't seen anything but The Fly. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He, he, uh, didn't Tom, you said he made uh, Dead Zone? Yeah, he directed The Dead Zone. Yeah. Yeah, which is also actually one of my favorite movies, but, um, but that's it. That's all I'd seen The Fly and, and Dead Zone. But you remember the fly being really gross or like how much? I remember it being gross, but I think because I was a teenager at the time, it was just like, oh, this is fun, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I sort of changed my my view of what's fun uh, in the intervening 40 years. (laughs) Uh, Well, so how about Matt? What's your history watching David Cronenberg movies? So I've, I've, seen the fly uh many times and i used to watch this movie all the time anytime it was on tv i was like i got i gotta watch the fly um i wasn't like uh a huge david cronenberg fan like some people and i wasn't like an anti-fan either it was just like oh yeah that's just another director but i know some people get really obsessive about his films um so i was aware of his his work and uh I definitely had seen Existence before, at least like most of it. And Scanners, when it came out, I was seven and I remember it being on HBO a few times and it scared the hell out. I couldn't watch it. If it came on, I had to change the channel. It was just like, just something about the tension of that, of the way it shot just freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that I had seen parts of Videodrome because like some of those scenes are super familiar Mm -hmm. to me, but I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. And I, I've certainly seen some some other Cronenberg uh, films. I'm trying to remember specific ones right now, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, it was it was interesting to like watch these all the way through. Uh, some of them for the first time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge Cronenberg expert either. I mean, the first movie of his, I, I think I, I mean, I heard about The Fly when it came out because it was a you know a big hit movie. But back then, I was too scared, really, to watch most horror movies. So I, I just assumed it would be too scary for me. So I never watched it at that time. And I think the first one of his that I actually watched was Existence, which came out when I was in college. And uh, I liked it. I, you know, and I, I liked it pretty well. I mean, um, but, uh, you know, other people told me, like, oh, this is not as good as his earlier movies. Huh. So I went back and watched Scanners and uh, Videodrome. Um, and I think maybe that's it. Um, uh, so those are the ones I had seen. Um, oh, and then I had watched, um, oh, actually I'd seen the dead zone as a kid and I love that. Um, and history of violence, I I think is really good as well. Um, for this panel, we're we're talking about the ones that are the the most science fictional in my opinion and the ones that he was the writer on. So like the dead zone is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel and like, Naked Lunch is an adaptation of a William S. Burroughs novel. And The Fly is technically an adaptation of a yeah. short story, but he changed and it so much that it has almost nothing to do with the short story. So It's also right. based on an old movie from the 50s. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, if you're curious, that's why we're talking about these specific movies is because they're the ones that he wrote that are the most science fictional. Um, but how about Tom? What's your history with uh, with David Cronenberg? So I I have a, a a good long history with David Cronenberg and I, I didn't you know w- reading your article Dave uh, based on your your interview with him on Geek's Guide 
and reading all the different titles of movies that he had created was kind of like listening to one of those like you know introspectives on a certain band that you like never knew you loved every <laughs> single one of their songs mm-hmm. yeah. so i was i was reading that and i was like holy crap he made that and he made that and he made that and i always just thought he was like a niche kind of body horror guy but then just like seeing his whole catalog listed out like that i was like this guy is so versatile and i'm really impressed by like how much of a true genius he is but how much of a true like workhorse and craftsman he is as well but i i had so that was part of my experience was knowing that was realizing that holy cow he made all these movies um but the other part of it was when i was young my best friend since i was two lived around the corner from me and is one of those david cronenberg like obsessive fans and uh he introduced me to well, first of all, Scanners in like right when it came out. Um, and I actually watched Videodrome in off of like a pirated HBO <laughs> channel with like the static over it, kind of like <laughs> it was like it was like this self-referential thing watching that. Yep. But um, but I watched it like that. And my, my friend Greg, he showed me see I never watched had watched the whole movie of Videodrome, but he had shown me several scenes like you gotta check this out, this scene where this guy like <laughs> puts a gun into his like stomach. It's so crazy. You just got to watch it. And I'd watch it and be like, gross, that is like disturbing. Um, but he loved all those movies and he would, and my other friends would like quote scanners and talk about scanners. And I never had seen the whole movie, but I'd seen pieces and parts. And I had, you know, I knew the story just by my friends, like talking about it so much. And then, um, and then, you know, every time a new Cronenberg film would come out, my friend Greg would be like, oh, you got to, you got to check out Existence. It's a new film by Cronenberg. It's really awesome. And and so I'd go watch it. Um, but that's kind of been my history of it. I, I, I've been, uh, you know, introduced to it by a lot of people who are really big fans of his. And I really now, like, through through watching these movies and reading your article, just have developed this completely new respect for the guy. Yeah, I mean, if people haven't re- uh, listened to my interview, again, it's in episode 125, and it's also, there's a transcript, uh, I think it's on uh, Nightmare Magazine. Um, David Cronenberg is an incredibly smart guy. I mean, you know, he's talking about Sartre and Heidegger, just, you know, <laughs> off the top of his head and stuff like that. I mean, so um, it's much different than a lot of other Hollywood directors that you might talk to. I mean, he's a, uh, and he actually, you know, his um, initial ambition was to be a novelist. And uh, he just sort of like fell into filmmaking by happenstance. Um, But he has a very like novelistic um, intellectual sensibility. Um, But so, yeah, so let's talk about Scanners, um, which is the earliest uh, of these movies that we watched. So Andrea, having no, uh, having never seen Scanners before, kind of what were your initial impressions of it? Um, Well, watching it was very, it felt to me very much like a first movie. Um, it's very, there's a lot of wide shots of big corporate buildings and, mm-hmm. um, some of the perform, well, specifically the main character is kind of flat. Um, I would but- say he's more than kind of flat. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be nice. He's just flat. Um, he's flat. <laughs> uh, um, but everything else about it, like, the Patrick McGowan and uh, Michael Ironsides are yeah. always, they always deliver and they're both mm-hmm. so engrossing and great to watch. Um, I could, you know, I could watch anything, but overall 
the story is fantastic. Like, I, honestly, I'm watching this and I'm like, how has nobody ever remade this? Because uh, I really think you could get more in depth. Because uh, I felt like I was, it was engrossing, but I felt like uh, the, the the big reveal that they are brothers and that uh, the Patrick McGowan character is is their father was just dumped on us instead of like sitting seeing it dramatized. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen that. So I I actually would really love to see a remake of it. Um, yeah, actually, as let, a more mature, in depth film. Let me just give a little context for this because this is interesting. So David Cronenberg is Canadian. And at this time, there was somehow the Canadian government, they were really making a big push to like build up the Canadian film industry. And so they would basically pay you to make a movie. You know, they'd give you a tax <laughs> exemption for the whole production cost of the movie. Yeah. Um, but because of something, for, for some reason having to do with that, this movie had to go into production in two weeks after they got <sighs> approval of this grant, basically. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, they didn't even have a script. They just had like oh, God. 12 pages of notes about what the story was going to be. Wow. And so David Cronenberg was like writing the script each morning before they filmed oh. it. So uh, so if the movie seems a little uh, on the <laughs> underdeveloped yeah. side, yeah. Uh, that's a big reason why. Yeah. That, well, that's – yeah, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, just like I enjoyed it. I thought it was really interesting and cool and um, – you know, just off the top of my head, the whole drug that uh, affects pregnant women, that like mm. that totally leans into the whole thalidomide thing. Did anybody yeah. else think of oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It was clearly uh, influenced by that. But I really, I would love to see a remake of that, like a more mature version of it. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I didn't say the basic premise is that you have basically like battling telepaths and they can yeah. kill each other with the power of their minds. And um, and they're sort of like competing groups trying to control this power and use it for their own ends and stuff like that. Um, so how about Matt, what were your, uh, what was your initial take on this movie? So the first 10 minutes of the movie I realized why this movie scared the hell out of me as a kid. So, you know, there's that scene where they're doing the psychic demonstration with the group of like secretive corporate executives in some kind of uh, auditorium. And then the one guy who's supposed to be doing the read actually gets like the tables turned on him. And then uh, Michael Ironsides basically explodes his head. <laughs> and And this just like, freaked me out even now i'm like holy shit because i i had I, I no memory of that but then i'm like oh this is why this movie scared the hell out of me um so i i i like like there's some kind of um there's a tension to the film there's a kind of um uh like cronenberg has this way of making like a sunny afternoon terrifying <laughs> and it reminds me a lot of uh, some of John Carpenter's work, especially this this movie, there was just some kind of like this this sinister science fictional aspect to it that I really liked. Uh, I love Michael Ironside. Um, I also think that uh, so many films and TV shows borrowed from Scanners, and the mm. the most obvious one is Stranger Things, right? So with like when you use your psychic powers, you get a bloody nose. I mean, that's like mm. it's also you know a fire starter too. But it, mm. you could just you could just see how. Uh, later media just copied or stole from this, basically. Um, I liked it. I, I felt like, Andrea, that there were uh, certain pacing and storytelling mm-hmm. elements that didn't 
quite work, but I could see the the um, all the pieces were there. So you know, I, I'm in a uh, a writers group, and and it, it felt first drafty, but I was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so close. Like if you had just mm-hmm. fixed these few things, it could have been really great. So so that to me, um, uh, you know, I, I was okay with it. I was willing to overlook that, and uh, you know, there was a cu- couple ridiculous things like he could. Um, use his mind to like the computer is a nervous system. So you can use your brain to hack into the computer. And I was like, Oh, is that really established? I don't know. It, it, it didn't quite work for me. Um, but I, I definitely got like a kind of Theodore Sturgeon more than human thing, you know, building kind of a super race people. And um, I definitely love the reveal that they were brothers. I did not see that coming. I did. I, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I mean, I had I had a few issues with the uh, the main character. I forget his his the character's name. Cameron uh, Cameron Vale. Yeah, Cameron Vale, who's like you know basically like this homeless, mentally ill guy who who you know two scenes later is like hacking into a corporate computer <laughs> yeah. and and like you know walking around as this you know clean cut businessman without any difficulty whatsoever. And I was like, okay, come on. Um, but uh, I was willing to overlook a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, I thought it was enjoyable. And how about Tom? What was it like for you uh, finally watching this all the way through? I really was impressed by it. I really thought, um, you know, like like Andrea and Matt have pointed out, there's some, I guess there's some flaws and some immaturities with the writing based on what you said. They had to rush it. They had to rush the writing quite a bit. I can't even believe it's as good as it is when you when you tell me, you know, how, how mm-hmm. it came about. But I think it just has such a gripping, memorable concept to it that is followed through with with a really strong story and and so many absolutely psychologically, viscerally memorable scenes and images in it that mm-hmm. it, it's absolutely a classic. I mean, I look back on it now, like I was in sixth grade when this came out, everybody in my junior high was talking about it. Everybody was quoting it. Everybody was saying, I'm going to suck your brain dry. And I didn't, I had not seen that (laughs) until later. My friend Greg showed me that scene. I was like, holy crap, that is horrifying. And the scene where the guy's head explodes, like everybody talked about that for years, for years and years and Mm -hmm. years. And it's still to this day, if I think of the word scanners, even if I'm, you know, thinking of like, uh, Something that has nothing to do with the movie. I will picture that guy's head blowing up, and uh, like every time and you're scanning a document, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much. If the well, if the word "scanners" pops up in in any line, like when I'm reading something, I think I picture that guy's head blowing up. I'm just like, you can't forget some <laughs> of this stuff. And it's just he just did such a good job of tapping into your unconscious and and you know into your psyche, into the deeper parts of your psyche in this haunt literally haunting way where you can't stop it just keeps coming back um that yeah i i have nothing but respect i i think the main character i think the fault there was probably with the actor um i think you know maybe it's tough to measure up to the other actors that he was playing against but i think he just felt a little kind of wooden to me um his performances but i but overall i just think it's a it's a fantastic just shocking astonishing absolutely memorable movie yeah i, I mean i'm sure that the i think the he, i i i understand the actor he retired from acting sometime after this because and i think he became a fairly successful like playwright or something like that 
Oh, wow. um, but maybe acting just wasn't his thing. But I, I do yeah. think that um, David Cronenberg often writes scripts that are like, there's tons of dialogue and lots of abstract ideas and stuff. So mm-hmm. I can imagine it's not necessarily the easiest thing for an actor to make it seem natural because it is so sort of intellectualized everything but if this felt a lot less intellectual than his other stuff there wasn't any big philosophical monologues like there are in the other ones i think he was i mean all due respect to that man he was not a good actor (laughs) (laughs) like it was the problem because you know like michael ironsides and 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 uh, Patrick McGowan were hitting it out of the park. I mean, you, you really but can't they're, go they're wrong with- they're sensational actors, though. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Michael Michael Ironside's pretty much like the go-to, 80s go-to actor for like cold villain. Oh, yeah. Murderous villain. He's terrifying. Um, the other thing I want to say about Scanners is that I think that what really makes this movie is the sound design. The sound design is mm. so good. And it really, you know, when, when there's the telepathic battles and everything, I think it's really the sound design that is making it work so well. And there's the scene where there's like this sort of like cult or like, yeah. you know, hippie group of telepaths or something. And they're all like communing and there's this um like overlapping voices of everything they're saying yeah. and just just the the just the audio experience of listening to that is is so um striking yeah that part is extremely haunting uh, yeah. you know when they're all communicating and then like the group comes in and just blows them away you know it's <laughs> like you know like david cronenberg's like he doesn't care he's like no nope, we're just we're just gonna yeah. we're gonna kill everybody yeah so uh, any other any final thoughts on scanners before we move this- on this might be a little off track, sorry, but uh, did anybody else in the meeting uh, right at the beginning notice that somebody said something about dolphin espionage? <laughs> There's this line about dolphin oh, espionage. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Do, does anybody remember a movie called Day of the Dolphin? Is that a reference no, to that movie? No. Well, that was no, a, well, well, the U.S. military was using dolphins, right? That, the, yes, it was a movie yes. about that, yeah. So it's like really referencing something very obscure about like espionage. Well, I feel like it's a, it it's it's a big thing in science fiction, like Hitchhiker's Guide and mm-hmm. some of the right. and stuff of like dolphins being smart and telepathic and stuff like that. So I, I think it's sort did, of. What did the CEO say? He was like, "Oh, we're we're developing women like perfume and military he, weapons." Yeah, <laughs> like, it was like, so yeah. that conversation yeah. was so odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So speaking of odd conversations, let's move on to Videodrome. <laughs> yes. So, so Matt, what was your? Uh, oh, I guess I'll say it's this is this movie defies uh, synopsis, but um, <laughs> yeah. basically, uh, James Woods is a creepy um, TV executive who's always looking for the most titillating sort of material to boost his ratings, and he finds this show called Videodrome, and he starts pirating it and putting it on the air. And, or at least with, he starts, he's at least trying, talking about putting it on the air. And Videodrome is just this weird show where uh, there's like people being like sort of in sexual situations, being tortured. And um, he gets drawn into this increasingly bizarre conspiracy involving sex and television and weird hallucinations and different um, like factions fighting to control Cult, the culture and stuff like that. Uh, so, so Matt, what was your uh, in, initial impression of Videodrome? So, this movie is both 
amazing and horrifying at the mm-hmm. same time. It's it's like it's got. I actually think the story in this is is better than Scanners. I mm. think that it's it's all it's all there, and you just kind of have to have to follow pretty closely. So you know, um, I haven't seen uh, Debbie Harry in anything else, as far as I can recall, mm. and I thought she was she was great in this. Um, and James Woods, of course, and like um, so. The thing that I've realized with with Cronenberg is his stuff is very hallucinatory. And Mm -hmm. if you kind of step back a little bit from the plot and just kind of go like moment to moment, those like set pieces work much better than when you try to slap the narrative together, because at some point you're like, you're so far into the hallucination. You don't know if it's real or not. You don't know whether to take that scene seriously with regards to the plot. My take is that um, everything that he's seeing, that's, surreal is an hallucination caused by this signal from the from the video that he's watched and they're they're somehow embedding some kind of message in the video to to control him uh and then once he's done his thing once he's proved his usefulness then he they just control him to kill himself using the voice of the woman he loves uh nikki brand debbie harry so um that part i thought worked really well um Actually, let me let me let me jump in there because, yeah. like, I, I I forgot to mention, yeah. So he so he has he has this girlfriend who likes she wants him to like cut her with a knife or something like that as a erotic thing, and I think it's didn't it, so they say at the end that she had died before the story started, and so no, like, no, okay, no, she I, died she died after she went to Videodrome to try to be on it. They killed her, but but before they killed her, they used yeah. her. They recorded her saying stuff for him. So that she so, could seduce him after she was dead. Yes. So what Bianca Oblivion, the 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 daughter of Brian Oblivion, the one who invented the video drum signal, says that in order to elicit the hallucinations, you have to shock people. And one of the ways they discovered to shock people was by these horrific snuff films. So that's what the video drum signal that he uh, pirated. Uh, was it was these horrific snuff films and like that by the way like there's a trigger warning there's so much violence in this like people mm-hmm. cutting each other and 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 just like it's it's crazy um crazy violent and um i thought it's actually like you know this comes up every few years it, you know it, it was a thing in the 80s and it was a thing you know um um you know with video games in the 90s uh <laughs> And so it's like this this fear that media is somehow corrupting people's yeah. morals. And I thought that aspect of it was really relevant. It was like, you know, here's a guy who just doesn't, you know, give a crap and he's, you know, doesn't care uh, about the moral ramifications of what he's doing. And then he himself gets corrupted by something that's even more disgusting than what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And that I thought that aspect of it worked well. Um and, you know, one of the things that I, I think is Cronenberg's strength is that he's consistent with his own vision. He sticks to his vision no matter what, even if it's like so off the rails, like someone would be like, well, you, you shouldn't do that. Why would you do that? And he does it and somehow comes out the other side and you're like, holy crap, that was crazy. I don't know what I just saw, but it was like <laughs> amazing and horrific. And, and uh, you know, like a lot of stuff today Marvel movies. Um, they, there's so many producers and executives that are watering stuff down. At the end of the day, you get this sort of 
thing that's, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's entertaining, but it just sort of lacks a director's vision. And what I feel like Cronenberg, absolutely. This is a hundred percent his vision. And I respect him for that. Does it work a hundred percent? No, but I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Well, and this, this movie has more like unforgettable original mm-hmm. visual images than probably any other movie I can think of. Like the, the gun, the gun, the gun, gun shocking. Yeah. The, the, the TV screen as like a giant yeah, breast screen. with her mouth on it and he shoves Ugh. his head in. Like that effect, it, that's a real effect that they created. It wasn't, you know, it's not, C- they didn't have CGI back then. It's just astounding. Yeah. yeah. The like flesh vagina in his uh, stomach that yeah. he, video tapes, like VHS tapes get inserted into. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was astounding. So many, so many images. So, so Andrea, as someone who's not that into body horror, how did you respond to video? Um, I did. A, there was a lot of cringing going on, a lot of just kind of like watching the screen between my fingers. Um, <laughs> but yes, it definitely solidified that I do not like watching really gross stuff, like stuffing uh, uh, tapes into some your stomach or or a hmm. gun with that's attached to your hand in a slimy way. Um, but <laughs> the thing about this movie um, was one, yes, the incredible images that he creates. Like I was sitting there watching, like what could it have been like watching this when it first came out? Like we're, you know, our brains are wired for CG and this must've been so um, outrageous. And uh, at the time that it must've been, it, it had to be so much more shocking. Than I feel, we, but I feel like if imagine. this came out today, I'd still be like, holy shit, I can't believe they made that movie, you know? I, but that's but I think that's from a um a perspective of I can't believe this got past like a bunch of executives right. as yeah. opposed yeah. to that that image is like how did they do that kind of way you know mm. um it must have been shocking to see like those image like him you know the 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 sticking his face in the breast and the and the hand and the stomach like I was actually sitting there going how the fuck did they do that um, <laughs> yeah. you know with this is all practical effects none of this is yeah. video you know none of this is CG so so wait, so so Tom you said that you watched certain scenes of this yeah my That's friend Greg had recorded them off a uh, pirated HBO signal with uh, you know with the static mm. over it and everything. So I, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And he showed me the, the gun in the stomach scene. I had not seen the breast TV scene, which Andrea, you just asked like, how the heck did they do that? They actually made it inflatable TV screen and they, and they projected the image onto it. They made an inflatable screen and projected the image onto it. And then he shoved his head into it. And he said, I think it was, I, I was hard to understand i was reading this online and it said it was made out of like dental dam material so he said that he said it was actually it felt like a giant breast um so So i don't kind of latex i guess yeah but i i was just to me this was a watching this movie was like a transformative experience like experience it was more than just a movie to me did you say he also made the movie crash yes yeah. Uh, I didn't right. say I, that, I don't think, but he did, yeah. I, I won't digress on that at all, except to say that I had the same feeling after I got done watching that movie. It was more than a movie to me. It was a transformative, possibly life-altering experience. Um, and I did not know until I read your article that it it was that was also him. But when I watched this movie, first of all, I think his writing is very similar to yours, Dave, in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of... Um, 
brutality and just unflinching honesty in your stuff that I see in his stuff as well that I was like, man, these guys are like, uh, like kindred spirits. Hmm. But, um, but I also thought like he has this like perfect character. Like we always, we talked in, at Clarion about how like the perfect character and you've, you've always hammered this home to me, Dave, the perfect character is somebody who has this like deeply held belief that is then going to be challenged by the story. And they start right off by putting him in the talk show. And by the way, I apologize if I'm kind of off with my answer. I actually died three weeks ago and I recorded my responses. <laughs> so, uh, so like, if you haven't watched the movie, Brian Oblivion, you find out later, he actually died like decades before the movie started. Um, and he's not actually, he's just a bunch of like, he just recorded so much of himself that you can still kind of interact with him. But I thought this movie, you know, he starts out on the talk show at the beginning with Deborah Harry, Blondie, you know, like this awesome superstar from my youth. He starts out on this talk show with her talking about whether or not what he does, this porn stuff that he does and this, you know, depraved kind of TV station that he runs is hurting people. And he, and he says, no, it's not hurting people. And, and the presenter says, don't you care? And he goes, no, of course I care. He goes, look, what I'm doing is giving people a harmless way to express their base desires. <laughs> and, and you really get the feeling that he believes that he's not just BSing the, the audience. And, uh, then the movie then sets out to shove that in his face and go, okay, let's see. Is it harmless? Because I think what the movie, the theme of the movie, I don't think anyone's going to argue with me is, look, if you are what you eat, you know, if you, if you eat a bunch of junk food, you become junk food. If you eat a bunch of healthy food, you become healthy food. You also, we have to realize that, you know, TV being this massive cultural wave in the 80s when suddenly everybody was watching TV all the time, Cronenberg was questioning that and saying, you are what you eat visually and mentally too. We're not sitting around right. reading. Go ahead. I, I I think you could read it another way because you know Cronenberg is basically the James Woods character in a way because he at this point he's already made a bunch of incredibly violent sexual I understand. movies, and so I I think he's playing a little game where he's like, okay, let's take this idea that TV violence causes real life violence and play it out to its logical conclusion. This is the kind of stuff that would be happening. You don't see this happening, ergo, uh, TV violence doesn't cause this because what I'm showing you in this movie is so like exaggerated uh, and fantastical and not realistic. But I, if you actually believed that was, if you if you took that premise, this is what reality would actually look like. I don't, I don't agree. I don't think he was, I don't think Cronenberg is as overt as that. I think he's more like, he, he takes in things from what he observes and then he plays them out um, almost like the character in another movie we're going to talk about grows these organs inside himself and doesn't know like how he's doing it or why. He just knows like he consumes things and then this other stuff comes out of him. And I think Cronenberg has a lot of craft, but I also think there's an element of him when he creates it seems like he just says, look, I'm going to respect whatever's going on in my subconscious and not try yeah. to... I Not think he's to, following his id. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but to but to finish off what I thought about the movie, I really did think he was the movie is making a point about look, you are what you consume and you think it's harmless, but is it really harmless? And look at you know, if you're always consuming this stuff, it's gonna it's gonna have space in your brain and in your subconscious. You're letting it in and it is then gonna come out in other ways later. And I don't know, I don't think he's trying to say like 
if you watch TV, you're going to pull a gun out of your stomach and kill people. I don't think he's saying that, but I think he's saying, hey, you probably ought to think about this. You probably ought to think about what you're consuming and curate it. And I actually walked away from this movie thinking, I think I want to curate what I consume more. I think I want to pay more attention to if I'm going to watch this thing, is it going to be good for me or not? Or is it going to be no more David Cronenberg movies? (laughs) No, it might be be exactly the opposite is true. I think exactly the opposite, Dave. I think more David Cronenberg movies because those movies are, I would argue, very good for you because they're going to make you examine yourself, make you look and see like, what am I doing? Okay. I, I, I want to get. This was, I want to get Andrea. Andrea, Please. did you mm-hmm. want to say something uh, about specifically about that conversation? I, I, I thought I just heard you trying to get into the. No, no, I something. was just no, no, I wasn't. I, I have something to say, but you guys continue with that conversation, and I'll just add my little addendum at the end. <laughs> okay, Matt. I just, I just wanted to say, like, I, I feel as if this could be. I don't know David Cronenberg at all, but I feel like this could be his own sort of personal exploration of his own subconscious. Whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, he absorbed a lot of these very, very violent body horror films. And then like, okay, what did that do to my psyche? Well, it made me want to create these really crazy violent, like, it, you know, it, it just seems that it could, you know, it's just theory of mine, but. And Dave, I'm not trying to say like, oh, David Cronenberg is trying to say we should censor TV because it's bad for you. I don't, I don't think that's what he's trying to say at all. And I don't, that's not yeah. what I'm taking away from it. What I'm taking away from it is less of a political, like, let's control other people type of thing. And more of a, like, you should, watching this movie, I feel like you should come away thinking, I should maybe not just, uh, and it's so much more real today. Like, I should maybe not just, to finish that thought, I should maybe not just, you know, consume whatever they put in front of me. Um, and it's and it's so much more real today. Like, there's so many prophetic images in this. The image of all the people sitting in the cubicles with each with a TV in front of their face is so much like modern office space. But back then we did not have that. There was not a bunch of people sitting in cubicles with computer screens in front of them because we didn't have computer screens. So that was like a prophecy to me. That was like, that's what we're going to have. And then think about if it was true back then that you have to be careful what you consume. What about now? We have taken what we started off with in the 80s with TV and we have now exponentially increased it with social media and with all the all the media that we have now all the our, our phones being glued like I can't imagine the movie he would make now <laughs> if it was a young David Cronenberg observing our society now I just I just you know we would have to ask David Cronenberg I guess but I just think it is possible to read this as a satire of the idea that people just sort of mindlessly imitate whatever they see on television. Sure, um, sure. But, but we need, we need to move on. But Andrea, what was your little, what was your uh, addendum there? Um, well, I, I, everybody's looking for messages and I didn't really take any, a message away from this. I think maybe because I kind of like removed myself from it because the images were so horrific <laughs> for me. Mm. <laughs> but what I did like looking at it from a, a like a filmmaker's perspective, I just found, first of all, I just want to say that I think his, a lot of, Cronenberg's genius is in his casting. Um, he casts the perfect people for his roles. Like James Woods um, <laughs> is perfect for that role. He just looks sleazy. He acts <laughs> sleazy. And it's the per- he's the perfect person for that. That, that fast talking, sleazy grifter who gets uh-huh. who allows the story to get the better of him. You know, you, you set him up. There's this one scene where he's pulling out his gun and he opens up the gun and it's like 
it, the the thing that it made me think of is like, oh, he's a tough guy. He's got a gun. But then he doesn't know how it works and like falls apart in his hands. It's like <laughs> perfect metaphor for the whole thing. Like he thinks he's a tough guy. Oh, well, you know, here yeah. you go. And and Debbie Harry, who is, you know, the the purely a sexual creature cast in this horrific role as someone who's into, you know, sexual torture. Um, you know, I don't think, I think you're right, Matt, that she, I don't think she's been, in, she was in anything else. Um, but I certainly remember her from this. I knew she was in it. I hadn't seen the movie, but I knew she was in it. Um, so he like just takes somebody and just cast them in the perfect role. And I, and I look, you know, looking forward to the, all the other movies we're going to talk about. It's the same for all the other movies. He just is a genius in casting the perfect person for the perfect role. Yeah. So I, I think this is a spectacular movie. This is actually my favorite of the five. I mean, hmm, um, but, yeah, um, you know, it's it's the kind of movie you watch. You're like, oh, my God, I got to show this to somebody, you know, I yeah. can say, have you seen this? You know, yeah. um, and it's just so different. Like even decades later, it's so different than anything else. Yeah. Like uh, it's, it's just such an accomplishment, in my opinion. Um, like somebody was saying, like, you know, I think the toward the end, it could maybe be a little bit more, um, you know, tighter or <laughs> coherent or or something coherent is the word I um, would use. yeah but um but just you you just can't match it, it's overall just like mind fucking uh <laughs> impact um so yeah um but let's move on to our next movie the fly so um so tom uh overall thoughts on the fly yeah it's a great movie i saw it when i was uh when i was in high school i saw it in a theater and uh, was blown away by it then and was like, oh, it's such a great reimagining. Because I had seen the, you know, 1950s or 1960s movie. Yeah, 58. That is based, 58, that it's based on or that it was loosely based on. And I was like, oh, they're going to update that. Cool. I bet they'll do a good job. And I was just like, holy shit. I did not expect that. That is astounding. And, you know, growing up in the in the AIDS epidemic and, uh, and seeing this, it was almost obviously uh, – a merger of the fly movie and the AIDS epidemic and uh, you know, watching that play out on the screen and Jeff Goldblum just shining in that role. I think that was the first role where Mm -hmm. he wasn't like a supporting guy and he was like a lead and everybody was like, Holy crap, that guy can really act. He's, he can carry Mm -hmm. a whole movie. And it was just such a cool, like the relationship between him and Gina Davis is just so, it feels so real and fun and good. And then you watch it just, dismantle and then the you know the the visceral body horror kind of grossness of it is at the same time funny and horrifying and uh, i don't know it's it just it has always stuck with me I, in fact i had a, a, a virus when i was 19 that took away like 40 percent of my gum tissue and i was spitting out chunks of my gums and oh. i was trying to have some sort of sense of humor about it. And I would, I would talk to my friends and I would go, Hey, uh, fly, get into the telepod chamber. <laughs> and I would like, you know, quote parts of that movie. Uh, I don't know. It just sticks with you. He, he's just, he's just brilliant. You know, I agree. Videodrome is the better of all of it is the best of all these movies we watched, but still the fly is, you know, he made a block. He can make a, an awesome indie movie. You know, he can make a blockbuster movie. The guy can, I just think he can do anything. Yeah, well, I mean, The Fly has the highest rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it made the most money and has been seen by the most number of people. So, I mean, it's a perfectly, you know, reasonable choice for your favorite Cronenberg movie. Uh, I just happen to prefer Videodrome, but this is really good. As no, well, Videodrome is my favorite as well. Sorry. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess so. So the premise, if you don't know, is basically there's a scientist played by Jeff Goldblum, and he's uh, doing experiments with teleportation, where he has these two like phone booth kind of things, and he's teleporting objects from one to the other, and he teleports himself. And it seems to work, but it turns out that the, a little housefly has gotten into the pod with him. And so the computer has mixed his DNA with the fly's DNA and he starts mutating into a, a fly monster. And I mean, obviously, like as a kid, I, even if I, though I hadn't seen this movie, I knew what the basic premise was. But, um, you know, I got halfway through the movie and I was like, I had to stop it because I was like, I like these characters so much. I just, I don't know if I can bear to watch mm-hmm. what I know is going to happen. And so I think that's a, the mark of a really good movie where you feel that that strongly about the characters. Um, but so, Andrea, what do you think about the the fly? Well, I remember as a kid watching the original one from the 50s and being scared of it. So I remember being excited to see a, a remake of it. And um, it's I, I haven't seen the original in probably 50 years. <laughs> um I remember being scared of it, but I'm sure it was not anything like this uh, hmm. in the visceral things fall and body parts falling off way. Um, well, actually, let me just say about the the original. So it's different in that um, he instantly, the scientist instantly gets the head and arm of, of a fly. Right. He doesn't go through stages of transformation and stuff. And right. so it has this incredible final image where you see the the little fly in a spider's web with a human head and a human arm right, screaming right, as he's right. being eaten by a spider. And he right. says, kill, it says, that's kill right. me, right? And that kill line, me, kill me, right. that, no, that says, has been repurposed. Says, help, help, help me. Help, help, help me. <laughs> no, I, no, I, th- I think he says, kill me. And that, that line has been repurposed through yeah. like every comedy, every comedy series over the years, the Simpsons and, uh, and uh, what is it? Family guy has used it and it, it pops up everywhere. Kill me. That's it's that he definitely says, kill me. Okay. Um, but it's, yeah, but I was shocked at how hor- you know, how horrifying that is for a movie from 1958. Yeah. Like I said, um, it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> um, but this was a completely, I mean, it's the same story, but it's a completely different um, interpretation of it. And uh, again, I'm coming at this, I, I felt the need to sit back and remove because of the horrifying images I knew that were going to come. And, and indeed, you know, the pulling out of the teeth and the fingernails was just horrific. Um, um, but like I said, he is amazing at casting and Jeff Goldblum is just perfect for this role. The, you know, his expressive face and his eyes just lend itself to yeah. mutating into something really gross and creepy, which is what happened. Um, I mean, well, this and actually, and speaking ahead. of the casting, I mean, so it's Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis mm-hmm. are Gina the two Davis, kind of yeah. lead characters. And I didn't even know that they were in a relationship at this time. But just watching mm-hmm. this movie, I was like, they yeah. must have actually been in a relationship. Their, their, their chemistry is just so yeah. true, you know. Mm. And so, yeah, they did get married, like, or they were dating at the time. They it's subsequently exciting. got married. So, but I just yeah. felt like that, that came through um, so strongly. Yeah. But he's, he's so like, He's not your typical leading man, so it's just so funny um, to see him as a leading role. And also, boy, buff Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it was, in, it was I, I loved it in a gross out teenage kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about Matt? 
I, I love this movie. Uh, of the of the five we watched, this is my favorite. Um, I saw this a lot of times. Uh, this was one of the shows that, uh, one of the films at any time it was on TV, I watched it through to the end. Uh, and and you know, going back to it now, I, w- I was afraid the the suck fairy would come or the <laughs> suck fly, I should say, uh, come come and uh, you know ruin it. But no, I actually thought it it held up really well. Um, it was really well paced. And I, I just mm-hmm. thought like the transition from, uh, uh, of Seth Brundle of Jeff Goldblum's character in from this, like kind of, uh, nerdy, confident, but, but sort of shy guy who is clearly attracted to this woman to this insane, um, <laughs> murderous fly creature. It was so gradual and perfect. Um, yeah. that I just, uh, it was fantastic. Um, I had forgotten, like, I, I remembered thinking like, oh yeah, that was kind of gross. I forgot a lot of the body horror, like where he like vomits on the guy's hand oh. and it dissolves. Oh, that's so. The arm wrestling in the bar when he breaks the guy's <laughs> arm and the bone pops. Like this, I'm like, oh, right. I forgot about that. Oh my God. Um, the body horror was of course grotesque, but somehow it, it managed to do it in a way that it didn't feel um, like superfluous or, or gratuitous it, it just felt like it it worked with the story yeah. and then i thought i thought that like um obviously it's science fiction and and you know hypothetical and not not real but i thought like the way they presented it like you know he's gonna revolution like he's he gets uh motion sickness and i thought that was a great thing mm-hmm. like that's why he invented this teleportation thing cuz he gets motion sick in a car in a train in an airplane he can't you know he just gets sick in a car so he's going to you know he's brilliant he's going to invent this machine that people can transport one place to another without without moving um and then a fly happens to get in there and the computer's so smart that it merges their dna like that that's really a a cool concept I actually, and I, thought, like, is, I yeah. actually thought, Matt, it was interesting how he says, you know, I'm not even the smart one. I just have like sort of subcontracted all the different pieces of the project out to the really brilliant I people. That was, and, I thought that was him being self-deprecating. I think, you know, yeah, like he didn't build all those individual parts, but he bought them and 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 connected everything up. I I mean, but it was just a little I bit more that, plausible than in most yes. like mad scientists kind of situations. That's right. That was yeah, a really like, cool, a really yeah. cool trick that they that Cronenberg used. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, how is this guy in his in his you know studio apartment, giant studio apartment, like building this machine? It's like, well, he's just buying parts from everywhere, and then apparently, like, he wasn't quiet about it when they when um, Gina Davis's boss was like, I did some research and actually you know found a lot of backstory on him. So he was like clearly saying stuff to people, and no one believed him, you know. Um, but I thought that the the premise was cool. I thought that um, you know this movie was what eighty six, and I thought mm-hmm. that the um, the practical effects were really great, including like the, yeah. the teleportation machines themselves. Very mm. much reminded me of like the the alien, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the sort of, smoke, <laughs> yeah, um, and it's an egg egg shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just this this is my favorite by far of of the of the films we watched, and uh, it, it's a classic. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say like I feel like this is you know if you've never seen a Cronenberg film before. This is the one to watch. It's the most accessible and like crowd pleasing and everything. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. Probably, probably the most, con- uh, definitely the most consistent. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I've seen like a fair number of movies that are sort of similar to this in some way, 
Whereas Videodrome, like I've never seen anything like that. So sure. that gives Videodrome the edge for me. But I totally, I, I totally understand if anyone likes the fly better. One uh, one last comment on body horror in this. I I had a friend back when it came out, and I and I try to see this every time I watch rewatch the movie. I try to see if I can spot this. But he says, he said, "Did you notice his penis in the medicine cabinet?" <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if it, like I've looked and I'm like, I, there's a lot of stuff in the medicine cabinet, and I, maybe, but I don't. I think they didn't want to make it overt, but I think there's a fair chance that they did try to allude to that yeah because yeah. parts of his body are falling off yeah. and, he's, and he's saving them in his collecting them yeah right <laughs> well, that now seems I have like to go that's probably like a, a prop guy joke that they just yeah. you know you know wasn't supposed to necessarily be noticed uh i don't right. know uh, i'll just say the other thing i found really striking about this movie is that the sort of like douchey stalkerish ex-boyfriend mm-hmm. kind of becomes the hero at the end of the movie yeah. yes yeah yes. so cool yeah. such a cool twist so you yeah. have like the the really sweet nice guy turns into the monster and the the douchey guy ends up being the hero at the end yeah. which I, I can't remember ever seeing a movie where yeah. that happens before. Yeah. Yeah. That's another guy. That's another actor who plays that exact role in every movie <laughs> yeah. he's in. Just mm-hmm. a douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> I think they use that they use that trope that switch in the hills have eyes or i think that's the name of it there's a horror movie where that happens to the douchey guy at the beginning ends up being the hero and it's kind of a thrilling transformation (laughs) i have seen that but i I don't remember how it ends but um but all right so let's any any final thoughts on the fly yes uh this was mentioned to me today but david cronenberg is the gynecologist who gives birth to the maggot (laughs) baby which i didn't yeah yeah that's right yeah so he's actually done a like a fair amount of acting and sort of small roles i mean he was actually in um star trek discovery he had a fairly large part on that but yeah he appeared he like pops up you know not infrequently in different tv shows and stuff like that as an actor um all right cool let's move on to existence um so this is like i said this was the first cronenberg movie i saw and the premise is that there is a brilliant game designer and she's like testing or she's doing like a focus group for her new game, uh, which involves sort of like plugging yourself into these weird biological like game unit things and entering a, a virtual, you know, a, a sort of virtual reality hallucination thing that seems completely indistinguishable from from reality. And so someone tries to assassinate her because they there's like this um faction called the realists and they think that these games are destroying reality or perverting reality or something and so she goes on the run with jude law who's like a a pr guy or something like that um and they have to sort of you know survive in this and again there's all these conspiracies and different factions fighting over what should be a reality and there's different levels of reality and twists and stuff like that um, so Andrea, uh, overall, th- or what were your initial impressions of existence? Just as a film, I thought this, this was my favorite. <laughs> I may be in the minority here, but I just, I found it really interesting, um, just in its sort of prescience about, um, uh, gameplay and, and, and uh, virtual reality. 
Because I don't, virtual reality wasn't really much of a thing at the time. It was ninety, well, ninety-one, well, maybe not. So there was much, a whole, there was a whole spate yeah. of VR yeah. movies. This, I mean, this came out a couple months after the Matrix, so it was definitely uh, in the air. Well, they were the they were making making the same at the time. They were made at the same time. Um, but I just, uh, again, I kind of felt like the casting it really works here is just because uh, Jude Law is just so young and is just the perfect newbie kid for this role and um jennifer jason lee is the sort of uh know-it-all is not the word but but you know the expert um which is a role she plays well um (laughs) my first thought sorry this is kind of going off my first thought was um when she walks in and everybody claps i was like oh a room full of men clapping for a woman game designer that is science fiction (laughs) um but uh I just, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I just thought that the story itself hung together really well for me. And I liked the world that they create and, um, and the dynamic between the two characters. Uh, this was the first, uh, movie I watched in the series where I actually gagged. Um, specifically the, the scene where they eat the food, where he eats the food in the Chinese restaurant (laughs) was horrific. Um, (laughs) um, but uh, yeah, and and the talk about like the NPCs um, and how they move while they're yeah. waiting for the dialogue. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I just I really enjoyed this one. I I kind of put everything down and really watched it. Um, well, and you're like writing for games now, so maybe mm-hmm. that uh, yeah, probably had a little extra kind of probably yes. Because <laughs> I mean, I I think that um, I, like when, when I first watched this, I thought it was there was a lot to like in it. But just like when they go into the existence game itself, I feel like it just, I don't know, it just gets kind of dumb to me. And I, like I the agree. En- I like the ending, but I just feel like existence as it's presented doesn't seem like a good game. It doesn't seem like interesting to watch or to play. And I just feel like if they just made that part more compelling, I feel like over- the overall structure of the story is is pretty interesting. And But it's just, it's just sort of drags for me in the um, sort of three quarters of the way through the movie. Um, but so, Tom, you you agree with that? Yeah, I thought it was a really cool movie. Again, my friend Greg, who friends best friend since I was two, um, he told me to watch this movie years ago, and I did. And I kind of had forgotten about it, and then watched it again for this panel. And I thought that it was really cool. I thought it had a lot of really cool ideas, and like all Cronenberg movies, had a lot of very memorable, viscerally uh, shaking. Uh, you know, scenes and moments in it. But I thought the internal logic of the game itself wasn't there. There was, it was just like, oh, you're doing this because your character wants to do it. And I'm like, okay, but even when you're playing a game, there's a reason your character does something. It's not just because, you know, your character wants to do it in the game. There's motivations and there's, if the game is well written, it's got, you know, there's reasons that the character is doing things. And those weren't, I didn't feel like those were explored. It was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to do this now because my character wants to do it even though I don't understand why I just have this strong feeling that I should do it. Um, so that, that kind of made it harder for me to enjoy it. I think, I think just like you said, I think once they were inside the game, I didn't get, I guess because I've played a lot of video games, I'm just like, well, no, the game has to have some kind of, some kind of internal structure to it. Yeah. Especially since this is presented to us as being like the, the new project from this genius game designer, it just doesn't seem like a good game. I don't know if that's, you know, quibbling or not, but that, that I just feel, get, get sort of bored during that part of the movie both times I've watched it. But uh, how about Matt? What did you, what do you think of Existence? 
you know, again, I, like I, I really respect Cronenberg's persistence of his vision. You know, he, he has a vision and he sticks to it. Um, I agree that I didn't feel that the in-game narrative was strong enough, was compelling enough to drive the plot forward. But like each individual scenes were like so visceral and real and gross that I won't ever forget them. I think like Cronenberg uh, probably invented a new genre that I would call like biopunk. It's mm-hmm. like it's like technology with biology. It's like it's sort of H.R. Uh, Geiger-esque. And like, it was very much on display in this, uh, specifically, like, I will never forget the scene. And like, like Andrew said, in the Chinese restaurant where he's oh, taking yeah. apart the pieces. And then you realize, oh, that's the same gun that the, that the guy shot Jennifer Jason Lee with earlier in the film. And like, there's, there's all these little callbacks that keep going on. Like, oh, that part was, we saw that little piece earlier and just like little attention to details that were totally grotesque, but worked where like. Um, you know, Jude Law has like like sticks his tongue in Jennifer Jason Lee's port in the back uh-huh. of her, and then like they they're like he has to put on the little chapstick thing on the port before they, before they stick the, the bio port. Like it was just it was just so weird and like, gross, and it's like you could you could see where it's like Cronenberg is playing with these these like you know the the you know the the grotesqueness of, of of body parts but also like all mixed in with like weird sexual stuff and uh it like the whole idea of like what's real um you know to this degree i think you know uh definitely uh was was black mirror before black mirror like black mirror like some of the episodes totally you know ripped this off obviously not it's not original to to this the matrix was before this etc but i feel like this one was really took that idea of like vr taking over reality to a to a different level um and i love like like andrew said earlier like cronenberg is so great with casting uh, like William Defoe hmm. is the gas gas station attendant. Like it's just so perfect. Like he's just this crazy guy who, of course, he happens to have you know this this uh, giant pneumatic pump that can insert <laughs> this this bioport into your body. Like it's just sitting there next to the greasy tools in his yeah. in his uh, in his mechanic shop. And then you know, I think Jennifer Jason Lee or William Defoe says, "What do you worry about? They do it in shopping malls now." <laughs> like, right. It's like getting a piercing done. Yeah. Yeah. Like getting a piercing. And um, the one thing I will say that I really enjoyed about it as a writer is that uh, Jude Law and Jennifer Jason Lee are very aware of the narrative of the story. So they, they comment on the narrative. They have this meta narrative. Well, I think we're supposed to do this. Aren't we supposed to go here? Um, And I thought that was very clever because it's not something that you, you see a lot in, in films where people are like aware of like the, uh, the so-called plot beats. Mm. And and I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I, you know, my main issue is that like from scene to scene, I, I wasn't sure what the narrative drive wasn't necessarily like what they wanted in each scene, like the, the scenes, like individually they work, but like they didn't have enough connecting threads for me, but I do really appreciate the overall attempt of the film. So overall, I think it worked, but it, it's not like, parts of it that are flawed yeah i just want to explain if, if anyone hasn't seen it that the, this gun we're talking about it's this it's made out of like bones and gristle and stuff and it fires human teeth as its bullets which is one of the the things i really really like about this movie i, I just think that's so cool uh i want to say like so i don't know if you guys do you know you guys know the perky pat reference does 
Does everyone get that? Mm-mm. No. So there's a there's a part where they I think they've gotten like hamburgers or something from a place called Perky Pats. Yeah. And so that's a reference to the Philip K. Dick novel, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which is one of my favorite. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yeah. Um, favorite Philip K. Dick books. And the prem it's basically about um people who take this drug and it create you know, and you sort of like enter this like hallucination when you take this drug and you keep thinking that it's worn off, but it, it's all you're always still inside the hallucination. Like no matter how many times you think it's worn off, uh, you're always still trapped yeah. inside it. And so the, the idea of like at the ends of like, you know, are we still in the like once the idea is like once you've entered some reality that's indistinguishable from reality, then how do you ever know if you've gotten out of it or not? Um, right. So that's sort of like it's sort of swiped swiped that theme from uh, mm-hmm. from Phil I, I feel like it it's also predates the so-called simulation hypothesis, right? So that like there you know that we're all living in a simulation. Like how do you know? And and I think that was one of the interesting philosophical questions of the film. Yeah. So so the other thing I really like about it is that so at the end what happens is that um the characters like get out of like the real world so-called and it turns out that the what we thought was the real world or what was presented as the real world anyway was a, a different game and so they're in a different focus group testing this different game called Transcendence and um and then the um Judah and Jennifer Jason Lee characters assassinate the game designer and so that's the other thing i think is really cool is that um all the, the, is that the themes of assassinating a game designer that popped up inside the game were influenced by what was going on outside the game and what was in their minds uh, as they were playing mm-hmm. the game um so that's the other thing i've always really loved about this movie and that's that stuck with me and i love how like the the uh the british actors play with uh, you know uh, act with the american yeah. accents when they're in the game but then when they're out of the game they have their you know uh you know birth accent or whatever and and uh I was like, oh yeah, because like I was like, I don't think Christopher Eccleston can really do a no. It was terrible. Accent. He <laughs> he sounded like you know when people do that that uh, bad New York, New York accent. accent, that yeah. bad New York accent. Yeah, but that was the joke, right? Is that it, their it accents weren't good? Like that was right. yeah, yeah, yeah. They they talked about that. They're like, yeah. I didn't think that guy's accent was very good. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, any other thoughts on existence? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I, I think it really got um, overshadowed by the Matrix. Uh, it was yeah. a big financial uh, disaster. You know, um, I think I have, I think I have it here. It was, uh, it made 2.9 million on a $15 million budget. And so, um, after this, Cronenberg had uh, significantly more difficulty financing movies where he wrote the screenplay. And so sure. you see, he did a bunch of movies after this where there were adaptations or where other people had had written the screenplay. And so, like, so he had a big hit with um, a history of violence, um, but that was you know it was adapted from a, a graphic novel. Hmm. Um, yeah. So then, um, yeah, then he and he did Crash and a bunch of other stuff like like Tom mentioned and didn't really do anything more in the horror science fiction genre uh, for twenty three years. Uh, and his most recent film, which came out in 2022, is called Crimes of the Future. And this is a script. Apparently, he had written it before Existence and yeah. sort of tried to, you know, spent 20 years trying to get it financed. It was supposed to be with, like, I think Nicolas Cage uh, <laughs> at one point, but that kind of fell through. Um, the version I, that came out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Was somebody going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, 
Regarding existenza and crimes of the future, one thing I noticed about Cronenberg was that even though he's talking about technology, oftentimes the technology is not like what we think of as technology. We don't like we don't see like computers and flashing lights. We see like oftentimes it's biological or just sort mm-hmm. of like in the background, which I thought was very interesting. You don't really see that take in a lot of film and TV and media. Yeah, I mean he he is sort of one of his signatures is this sort of weird science fiction technology um, that, that shows up in a lot of his films and that is sort of, I, I can't think of it, a lot of other films that have things like that in it. Um, but yeah, so, so Crimes of the Future uh, is very, very weird. Uh, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. it's sort of like he's taken stuff from throughout his career and sort of uh, mashed them together into one movie. Um, but, but, but so basically there's, there's two main ideas in the movie and one is that in the future, for some reason, people no longer feel pain and no longer get infections and are growing like random new organs in their bodies. And so it's kind of become a thing to, because I guess because they can't feel pain, like they all sort of cut each other. in this erotic way, sort of like we saw with the character in a video drone, but it's like the whole society is all into that mm-hmm. now. Um, so that was one, one of the ideas. And then wait, what was the other? Uh, oh, is that, is that there's idea, this idea that because the future is so polluted that there's this faction that is sort of genetic or like doing surgery, I guess, to make it so that they can eat, plastic candy bars that are made out of toxic waste and so rather than trying to fix the environment they're going to adapt themselves to survive in this uh polluted you know horrible future wastelands Mm -hmm. uh so so the movie kind of explores those two ideas uh so uh matt uh initial impressions of crimes of the future okay um this is a horrifying movie. <laughs> it like, so I have to say like some of the visual elements of this film are like, they're stuck in my head forever. I'm never, I'm never going to forget them. They're, they're so creepy and brilliantly creepy. So like just, just a couple examples. When we first see Vigo Mortensen's um, like crash or bed or whatever, that's like hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. and you see it from a distance and it's like, looks like sort of this cockroach shaped thing upside <laughs> yeah. down hanging and, and the light coming through the window and it's sort of subtly moving. And you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> like that I have that. I'm like, what is that? That's going to be sticking in my mind. And then when like Vigo Mortensen is eating and he's in this kind of weird chair that's made out of bones that is like moving his body around, presumably to, minimize the pain that he feels from all these surgeries like that was just terrifying and creepy and then i thought it was really really bold of the film to start with the murder of a mm-hmm. child <laughs> yeah like, oh my god like yeah you, you know you're by his mom <laughs> by his mom yeah. who straddles him in a weirdly sexual way while she does it um so like there's this weird thing in cronenberg films where it's it's like sexual horror like this yeah. weird mix of like of like sex and horror and, and um, like just the scene where the kid is like eating plastic and he's like drooling and the, and and then you see the mother's horror at this. And like, like I was 
I was repulsed. And, yeah. and I think, I think you're supposed to be. Um, and then like s- some of the, the scenes where like they cut out from his body, the, the, um, the organs that have like the tattoos on them and just, uh, just the whole kind of, uh, it reminded me a little bit of like, uh, Terry Gilliam, like Brazil, like this whole, hmm. this sort of weirdly bleak dystopian. Yeah. Very gray, much. Gray, yeah. gray world. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's like a technology, but again, there's no like hard, like the hardware is, is like bioware. It's, it's, yeah. it's physical. It's, it's, and it's grotesquely physical. There's no like computers or, or wires or flashing lights. And, and, uh, that part of it is, is crazy. And then, and then, you know, the scenes where they're dissecting the body for entertainment and everyone's like watching it, it had a very eyes wide shut feel to me, mm. like almost like a secret society that's watching this, this very horrible thing, uh, happen. And, and it's titillating for them. Uh, the story itself though, I don't, I didn't feel that the the story itself was compelling. And in, in fact, that uh, about halfway or two thirds of the way through, I was like thoroughly bored with the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, the plot just didn't carry it through to, to me. But like, I thought that all the acting in this was, was really strong. And like, I just was having a hard time, like David Cronen, like imagining David Cronenberg pitching this to Viggo Mortensen, like, <laughs> okay, you're going to be laying in like this weird bed <laughs> and it's going to be moving around because you're in pain from all these surgeries. And then someone's going to be cutting you open with bone saws, like not actual saws to cut bone, but saws made out of bone. And like, just <laughs> we, like, yeah, I, I can't quite imagine how it was pitched to any of the actors. <laughs> well, um, well, what what you yeah. said, Matt, I mean, like, that was kind of my reaction. Like, it's a movie with, like, a mother murders a child. People get drills put in their head. There's at least two nude scenes. There's, like, all this stuff. But the overall impression to me was I was I just found it really hard to sit through the whole thing because mm-hmm. I was yeah. so bored. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so weird that there could be so much stuff that you would think would grab your attention and yet the pacing just somehow feels yeah. so like lugubre or so, yeah, just so, like, uh, just, yeah, just, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> mo- it's like molasses, yeah. but, you know, yeah. like wading through molasses yeah. pacing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrea. Um, well, yeah, I, I, everything that Matt said, it's, it's, it was the most opaque of the films. Uh, I was trying to pay attention just to figure out what was going on, but, the story was, as you said, very uninteresting. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel any connection to the characters, but I was fascinated by them. Um, and I think that's probably just because of the, the great performances. Um, like Kristen Stewart as this creepy little woman in uh, a government office, uh, is great. Like you can't take her eye, your eyes off of her. Um, and, and, you know, I said I, I gagged in existence when he eats the thing, the the weird animals. That was nothing on watching the little boy eat the plastic pail. I um, mm-hmm. that was really horrific. Just absolutely, mm-hmm. I absolutely put my hand over my mouth and had to stop myself from <laughs> throwing up in the living room. <laughs> um, yeah, everything about this was horrific. It, you know, intentionally, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to horrify you. Um, but as far as a movie goes and as far as a story goes, I just, yeah, I, I kept trying to disconnect or it was, I was disconnecting from it because it wasn't, 
um, it wasn't compelling as a story. Yeah. Uh, Tom, overall thoughts? Uh, I had a moment when the mother was killing her son where I almost had to turn it. I very nearly turned it off and told you, I'm sorry, I couldn't watch the rest mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, as a dad, it was really friggin' I had to look away mm-hmm. and I saw it start happening and I was like, I can't friggin' watch this. And it really, really was profoundly disturbing to me. Um, beyond just like, hey, I'm watching a movie and there's some weird, gross stuff happening. It was like horrifying to watch. Really bothered me. Didn't turn it off because I thought, now I'm going to take one for the team here. I might not feel good <laughs> for a couple of days, but I'm going to watch this movie. And I sat through the rest of it and I was shaken by how profoundly disturbing the movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read some trivia on David Cronenberg that he was distraught when uh, you know Videodrome wasn't commercial it was a big commercial failure and so was scanners and uh, i'm like well is he trying to have a commercial success yeah because i can't imagine you know that the audience for this movie is very large but you know i watched through the whole thing i thought the characters were absolutely repulsive i didn't find anything to like about most of them i thought they were fascinating like andrea said i thought Kristen stewart's performance was astounding i had seen her in I tried to watch Twilight years ago when it came out because I liked Harry Potter. And I was like, I can't understand this. She does not know how to act. But then watching this, I was like, wow, she learned how to act because that was an astounding performance. Um, And then I followed her all the way through the end. And I actually had a moment at the end of it clicked for me at the the very last scene when he finally gives up. The movie is about Viggo Mortensen's character, who's this artist who grows like, instead of, you know, creating something with his hands or with his brain, he actually creates new organs with his body. And he does it kind of half subconsciously or mostly subconsciously where he doesn't know how he does. People are like, how do you do it? And he's like, I don't know. And it's just like, it strikes me as that's like an amalgam for uh, David Cronenberg. People probably ask him all the time, what is it? How do you get how does this stuff come out of you? And he's probably like, I don't know. It just comes out of me. Um and he's fighting, that character is fighting the whole movie trying to say like, you know, I, 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 I'm trying to eat like a normal person. I want to eat like a normal person. And he finally lets go and realizes I am not a normal person. I need to eat what I'm supposed to eat, which is this repulsive plastic toxic waste stuff. And when he finally lets go and does that, he's just like, oh, everything makes sense. And, it's, and there's this cool like visual effect they do on his face with light and with color where you just, I felt it. I felt like, oh, he finally like stopped fighting who he was and accepted who he was and everything's okay, even though it's this horrible, horrible world. And I was, that felt good to me. I don't know if I needed to watch through all that stuff that I watched through to get there. I feel like it could have been a maybe a different, I, I did not enjoy and I would not recommend that anybody put themselves through this brutal experience of watching this movie. But I, But I came away from the movie thinking, this guy is absolutely still a genius, David Cronenberg. He he made what he wanted to make, and and it uh, and it works for for what it is. It's it's one of those movies that's absolute genius, but to me, still absolutely repulsive. I don't want to ever yeah. witness it again. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think mm-hmm. this is really only for hardcore hardcore David Cronenberg fans, yeah. and and yeah. some of them have 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 raved about it. So I mean, it does have its um, admirers, um, but yeah, it's definitely not. <laughs> Not not for the the average uh, 
film goer. I mean, it did, you know, this was a so $27 million budget and made $4.6 million at the box office. And wow. I just can't Ouch. imagine who thought this would recoup a $27 million, million yeah. just from reading the script. Like, how would you think that this was going to um, <laughs> recoup a $27 million budget? But uh, I, did, I do agree, Tom, that it, I got a little more... Um, uh, excited toward the end, or uh, what's the, I don't know the, what's the word? Like I sort of perked up a little bit toward the end. I thought the last twenty minutes or so were kind of more um, engaging, more engaging. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I can mention a couple of things I liked about the movie. Um, I mean, I, I think the idea of of the people adapting themselves to eat the toxic waste is a cool idea. I mean, I don't know if uh, David Cronenberg ever read Paolo Bacigalupi, but it sort of reminds me of. Paolo Bacigalupi's story, The People of Sand and Slag, which is one of my favorite science fiction short stories. Um, so I think that's a cool, that's a cool idea. Um, and there was some striking, again, there were, with Cronenberg, there were some striking images in here, like the, um, there's a scene where um, Viggo Mortensen and Leia Sadu are sort of embracing nude while this, you know, auto dock kind of machine is cutting at them. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a cool image. And then there's this artist who sews his eyes and mouth shut and covers his body and ears and does like an interpretive dance. And I thought that was a cool image. So there were things like that in, in the movie that I liked. But um, yeah, I, I think I feel like it's just overall, it's just like so expository. It's just dialogue and the dialogue is so expository mm. while at the same time not really making clear <laughs> what's going on at all. Right. So it's sort of like the worst of both worlds that <laughs> it's just characters explaining things, but you're not really still not really sure what's going on. Yeah. I, I actually had to look up what, you know, just to solidify my ideas of it's what I thought I was, oh, what I thought it meant. Okay. That is what I thought it meant. But, but I, I frequently felt lost um, trying to listen to the dialogue and understand what they were talking about. Um yeah, so I mean, I watched this, and then I read tons of commentary on it, and then I watched it again, and so, Oof, and then I wa- I read some more commentary on it. So, um, but the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, now I understand what's going on, but I don't see how anyone could possibly put this together the first yeah. time through. Uh, it's just like so much. There's just so much um, world building being thrown at you all at once, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is like you don't know. Like, there's a part where the um, He's ta- uh, Viggo Mortensen is talking to the mother who murdered the son, mm-hmm. and he says, "You know, if uh, if we were to do an autopsy on the son, what would we find inside?" And she says, "Outer space." <laughs> and it's like, what? Like, yeah, there's there's like so much stuff. Like, even still, doesn't make sense to me. And you don't know whether it's literal or figurative, or the character's or just weird, yeah, or the world's weird, yeah. or like I don't I don't know. Um, Matt, any other any other thoughts? I, you know. A statement like that, I remember that statement very vividly. And I, I just thought like, you know, Cronenberg, I feel like he's just, he's a lot of times he's operating on this kind of subconscious level and he just wants to sort of throw out all these things and like it gets you on this visceral subconscious level, like outer space, like what does that even mean? And then of course, all of our minds are going off on this crazy tangent wondering about that. And that's what he wants. Like, I think that's what he does a lot is he just creates these little hints of greater weirdness that he doesn't always explain. And that creates this overall larger picture of, of this world. The narrative, uh, I think that's like his weakest part is, is the narrative. Mm. 
Yeah, but but I mean, I feel like Cronenberg, like Tom was saying, he he did exactly what he set out to do. You know, it's like this kind of reminds me of um, the Phantom Menace or Southland Tales or Synecdoche, yeah. New York, where the the filmmaker clearly had a vision and did exactly what they wanted to do, and it sort of leaves me cold or doesn't really mm-hmm. connect with me. But it's not like it's right. aiming for something and didn't achieve it. Like this is you, exactly what he had. This is my sense, and especially since he spent twenty years yeah. trying to get this made. This is exactly yeah. what he had in his head, and now it's on film for for people who it does um, connect with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like you have to respect it as a work of art, and and it is grotesquely beautiful. But I. I respect you, David, for sitting through it twice. Yeah, just <laughs> like shocking. The first time, I'm like, that's enough. I, that's, I yeah. It. I don't think I want to see that again. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't have a problem with the the body horror, like all that kind of stuff. Like like Videodrome, I loved. You know, I just feel like, like I think Andrea was saying, just as an, it has like so little, this movie has so little narrative drive. And, mm. um, and Viggo Mortensen is such a passive character and it's basically mm-hmm. just people come and, like explain stuff to him and he just sort of sits there and you know is 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 educated about whatever ideas david cronenberg wants to uh play with you know and so um it just feels so like static it's it's almost like the you were just saying that it made me kind of think like he's going for some kind of noir detective science fiction noir detective thing because there's this mystery of what's going on but it never quite gets there because he is so passive and everything is through dialogue like because there is a noir feel to it of it yeah 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 and and i mean i I guess also like i i I feel like this movie could really use like a blade runner style title card to set up some of the world building Mm -hmm. right at the start because uh, otherwise the characters have to talk about it Mm -hmm. and um I, I just think it's a problem to have like all this stuff like for some reason people don't feel pain anymore. You know, for some reason there's no more infections, you know. Yeah. That, it was that, all set up but when they go to the the office for the first time and that guy just explains the whole thing in a giant yeah. monologue. And it was just yeah. like, What? <laughs> but I mean th- I feel I just feel like it would be better if there was some reason. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you know? I agree. Like he explains yeah. he it's it's explained as a fact, but it's not explained as an explanation. Why? Yeah. Yeah. It's just evolution, but then the government doesn't want you to know it's evolution. Okay. But then you don't really, you never really told that either. You sort of kind of have to come to that conclusion is that the government, whatever shadowy government there is, is trying to hide the fact that humans are evolving. Yeah. So I I just feel like if there was a title card at the beginning that said, in the future, people are evolving to do this (laughs) and, well, well, you know, infections don't exist anymore because of this or whatever. And then we can, okay, let's get on with the characters and we don't have to explain that in the in yeah. scene you know so uh so yeah so that's cri- any other thoughts on crimes of the future mm-hmm. yeah i think okay. they should rename it how i learned to stop worrying and love the plastic <laughs> <laughs> um all right let me see what, what else do i got on my notes here um also, oh, this was kind of fun. So uh, this is just a little thing in the fly, but there's a part in the fly where uh, the Gina Davis character, uh, you know, she's a correspondent for Particle, the fictional Particle magazine, 
and she she pitches this teleportation story to her editor and, and he he thinks it's not he thinks it's a hoax and so he doesn't want it and she's like well maybe i'll take it to omni magazine instead <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah i thought that was cool yeah 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 <laughs> omni was you, huge omni was huge yeah huge yeah if people don't know omni was a real um science and science fiction magazine um and the science fiction was edited by ellen datlow who uh, <laughs> yeah. matt kressel does the kgb uh, fantastic fiction reading series with oh wow and uh yeah and, and i think like william gibson i think she published you know Om- you know omni was what made him oh, yeah. big oh yeah um, but I think it had billions of subscribers. It was all sort of funded by um, Bob Guccione's yep. Hustler magazine, Empire. <laughs> it was um, a gorgeous magazine. Yeah, it was like a big, had, fat, glossy thing with, yeah. Yeah, I had, I had a, a subscription to it at the time myself. <laughs> I didn't, but I used to go to my, my high school library had a subscription and I used to wait every month. I'd be like, oh, I got to go see the next Omni issue and read the, <laughs> read the stories in it. And yeah, it was cool. Yeah, so just the idea that a science fiction magazine yeah. would be so well known that you could just mention it in a in a movie like this, and people would kind of have heard of it, you know, uh, that was kind of cool. Um, all right, cool. So uh, I guess we should start wrapping this up. Uh, oh, I guess I'll say David Cronenberg has a, at least according to Wikipedia, he has another movie he's working on called Shrouds, I think, and. Okay. Uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen did say uh, in an interview that David Cronenberg has had increasing difficulty getting his projects financed, you know, because I think the last couple have not done well financially. So I don't know if that'll come out. Um, but, um, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, always, always, int- int- yeah, well, always interested in, in what he does, even though Crimes of the Future I didn't really connect with, but. You know, I've, I've loved a lot of his movies. Again, Videodrome, I think, is genius. The Fly, I think, is is a real crowd pleaser if you haven't seen that one. And um, there's actually a lot of his movies I haven't seen that I'm kind of curious to see now. Like, Tom, you were saying that Naked Lunch you really like? Oh, it is mind-blowing. Has anybody else seen it? I haven't seen I it. I have. No. I have seen it. It's 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 very Cronenberg grotesque. Mm. Um, but not, not yeah. horrifying. Fun. no. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I when I watched it, I think I, I haven't seen it since I was like eighteen or something. But uh, yeah, it, it it's worth a watch. It's it's very weird. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think it's astounding, and I think you know almost any one of his movies. I think just like I said, learning that he did Crash, that he did The Dead Zone, that he did Naked Lunch, that he did so yeah. many so many great movies. Classic films, yeah, yeah. He's he's an absolute genius. If you haven't watched anything by him, start out with like Dave said, The Fly. That's the most yeah. accessible one, and then you know try some of the other ones. Maybe shy away from, uh, maybe shy away from Crimes of the Future. <laughs> maybe shy away from uh, Dead Ringers. We didn't talk about because it's not science fiction, mm-hmm. but shy away from that one as well. But um, you know, if you like being disturbed, don't shy away from those. But I, I I'm just impressed by. Number one, that he is an absolute genius, and number two, that he has merged that with an absolute mastery of craft. Because often you see one or the other, right? You see somebody who's like very workmanlike and who can produce a good movie, or you can see someone who is a genius and just is all over the place, up and down, and there's good ones and bad ones, but he is just both. And that's rare. I think that's very rare. And I think he should keep going as long as he possibly can. And the fact that he's still a genius. I mean, how old is the guy? He's 80. He's 80. And how long ago did he do Crimes of the Future? <laughs> 20, uh, last 22. year. Yeah. 
last year. So I don't, you know, maybe it's disturbing, but this is an 80, this is a 79 year old or 78 year old genius who made this movie. It's astounding that he's, his brain still works like that. And I think it's probably, it's, he said something in your interview with him, Dave, about, look, you know, as you get older, you think more about disease and things going wrong <laughs> with your body. And so it comes out in your fiction. So I think that, you know, maybe if you're a 78 year old uh, who's into really bizarre stuff, check out that movie. <laughs> it would be, you'd be the perfect audience I guess, for it. I guess one, th- one other thing I'll say in favor of Crimes of the Future is that there's so, m- there's so few science fiction movies that come out now that aren't like franchises and that aren't like yeah. temple blockbusters and things exactly yeah have artistic yeah. vision and then original and and then and this movie is definitely all of those things it's not like a marvel movie you know and yeah uh, like i wasn't crazy about it right. but you again you have to yeah. respect the someone who um who has an artistic vision and and yeah, originality just put out formulaic yeah make a yeah. Yeah. Holly, hollywood needs more of that in yes. general i think yeah there's just yeah. too much like you know let's just redo this ip that we've all Ugh. seen a thousand times and it, it, you know that i'm glad that there's some people like cronenberg who can just take their artistic vision and get full like free reign to to produce create whatever they want and yeah sometimes you're going to have failures but uh sometimes you get amazing stuff and yet you need to give them the freedom to do that. You know, it's almost like Hollywood should, in its own best interest, fund people like Cronenberg to make these kind of groundbreaking, holy shit, you know, I'm going to rip your subconscious apart and show you parts of your psyche you don't want to see so that we can keep things fresh so that, yeah, go ahead and make the Marvel movies, make a bunch of money, but let's have some kernel of gestation going on and let's just fund Cronenberg to be there and do that or people like it not that there's anybody else like him but we need that so it's like Hollywood should take a small 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 percentage of what they're reaping out of this mind-numbing hash and say okay we're (laughs) gonna put this we're gonna put this into seed and the seed would be Cronenberg this is this is the root of the problem with Hollywood though it's exactly what they don't want to do because they want to take all the profits for themselves and because they're all owned by corporations that are that are public corporations and they have to make money to their stockholders all that money goes back in into there which is why everything is in IP now because it's guaranteed uh, an audience um, but it, but it would what, be in there even if yes, you're self interested. It would be yes, in their own best interest. But they to do don't. That. But money people don't understand that. That's the problem. The people who are running Hollywood now are money people. They're they're businessmen. And they're not creatives. People yeah. who used to run Hollywood were creatives, and they liked movies. Yeah. Um, but these people are just like money. That's all it is now, and that's why we're seeing another reboot of Harry Potter and a reboot of Ugh. Twilight, a reboot of everything because. Because they there is no originality because there is there's risk in originality. Let me just mention too again that you know Cronenberg got his start uh, with these like grants or tax mm-hmm. uh, exemptions or whatever they were from the Canadian government and look at how that paid off. I mean I don't know how much they you know you know how much they uh, invested in him, but like look at how it's paid off with these you know twenty feature films and you know this decades long yeah, you know gover- brilliant government career. D- Government doesn't do that anymore either. Government, but they should. Is my they my should, point. of course. They should. A lot of things should be, but but we yeah. have to. This is a reality. This is the problem with what's going on with the with the Writers Guild and with the and with the SAG. Like this, uh, this is all 
part and parcel of the problems with Hollywood and why they don't want to pay original. They don't want to pay writers. They don't want to pay anybody, anything, because it's all about the money and, and making money for the CEOs and making money for the investors. And, and because they're all run by these, these tech companies and, and it's all about, uh, constant growth, you know? Everything has to be constant growth, but it's art. There is no constant growth in art. You can't, there is, you know, it's not a business that you can put some money into and you make money uh, always. And it's so your business is always growing. It's not that business, but that's what they're trying to make it. Yeah. And, and just speaking as a, a podcaster, movie reviewer, it would sure be nice if there were more original science fiction movies to talk about that were not, you know. Yeah. Formulaic, you know, that would give you more to to sink your teeth into, like a David Cronenberg movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think we need to start wrapping this up. But um, does is that all? Has everyone gotten their final thoughts out, or does anyone have any other final thoughts to to throw in here at the end? No. I'm good. I'm all set. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's wrap things up there. So again, we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerenser. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerenser for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.